Well, good morning, Sunridge. Good to see you. Um, if you're just joining us, uh, someone's either invited you or you've never checked out Sunridge. My name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are in a series, as Lisa mentioned, called God Is. I'm just so thrilled about some of the cool things that are going on here. Uh, you know, our church is just always moving forward, and these are such opportunities. Even though we can't be together in person, although it seems like that's, we're getting closer and closer to that, uh, these are opportunities for us to grow together spiritually and also to nurture one another just by being together and, and talking about God's Word or some of the things that are important to our culture today and reaching out to our community as well. So anyway, uh, join in in all of that. Uh, I always start our services off, these online services, by inviting you to tell us in the chat, like, where are you? Who are you with? What are you doing? I love to see that. I, on Monday morning, I go back and read through all of those. So uh, let us know right now. Before I jump into my message, I just want to spend the next few minutes talking about uh, where we are in reopening our campus. I want to say a couple of things in, uh, in preview of that. Number one is the church is not closed. Sunridge is not closed. The churches in this community are not closed. Um, our campus has been closed, but the church cannot be closed. It's, it's an organic organism uh, that is led by Jesus Christ. And Jesus said that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. So having a campus closed does not equate to the church being closed. It would be impossible to close the church of Jesus Christ. And yet um, you're hearing today about churches that are making plans uh, to reopen. Some actually have never stopped meeting. Some have set a date uh, regardless of what the public health order is, regardless of what uh, is being advised. And some have uh, come up with intricate plans of how that they will um, fulfill the letter of the law and yet can start to gather. Um, I want to say something just like that's really important that overlays all of this. I think it's really important for us to not divide over this. This is just one more issue, I think, that can separate us based on our viewpoint of uh, whether we should start to gather or not. Because I wanna tell you that Sunridge, uh, we have not set a specific date to reopen our campus. And there's a reason for that. And part of it is tied to um, just the perspective, I guess, that I and the board and your staff, we have as shepherds, under shepherds of Jesus Christ. Um, there's a vantage point that you have um, that, that allows you to see the, the entire church, which I don't think all of us can have unless you're sitting in that position. And so one of the things that has really influenced whether we're ready to reopen right now or not or in the next week or so is what is known as the risk versus benefit model. Some of you are already familiar with that. Uh, if you're in public safety or the military, maybe you use it even in your industry. There's a risk involved in, in many things that we do. And then there's a coinciding benefit. And the risk versus benefit model is really saying that you take a higher risk for a higher benefit. But uh, if the benefit isn't high, then you don't want to take an extreme risk in, uh, in doing something that in the end uh, shows it doesn't equal the benefit. So there's a couple of factors that contribute to the risk 
benefit model. First of all is safety. And I don't, I don't want to downplay this. I want to, be, I want to address this directly. This is a real virus. Uh, there are real health issues. Um, we, uh, likely this weekend in America, we're going to break the 90,000 mark of deaths. And so um, I don't know about you, but I have friends, personal friends, friends of friends that have been uh, afflicted by this virus. And uh, one of my good buddies is a strong, healthy man. And this laid him away for three weeks. Um, so it's super serious. So it is a safety issue for us. But then quickly following that is a quality issue. Let me explain what I mean by that. We've done the math on our seating in this auditorium that I'm standing in right now. And in order for us to fulfill the, the health orders and comply to how a gathering must take place, we could only put about 100 people in this entire facility. So if you picture a service with about 100 people, say families show up. And a typical family in Temecula in the valley here is two adults and two kids. And they have to sit together. And in the way we would be seated here, we would be able to get 100 people in here, which is 25 families, which would mean at the very best, there would be 50 adults in this room. Now, I've had home groups bigger than 50 uh, in the past. So just picture what it will be like in here for us to worship. Uh, you know, early first service, if you're part of the band or you've ever looked around, it's really hard to worship when this, when this room is empty like that. Picture trying to worship and, you know, spit flies out of your mouth. You're singing loudly. Your breath is projecting possibly beyond six feet. My spit flies here in the front row. So, you know, picture that. Picture sitting with your children uh, who, you know, we can't open children's ministry. Uh, picture that. It's just not going to be a great experience. And that's important to us as well. And, and on the note of kids, think about kids. There's no way we can do kids ministry. We can't social distance kids. They're not going to obey the rules. We can't put plexiglass uh, you know, spaces up or little blue tape X's on the carpet and expect those kids to stay there. And worse, we couldn't do that to our volunteers who would have to do it. And that's the fourth part of risk benefit to us is our volunteers. Um, at the very best, or I would say the very least, we would have to hold eight to 10 services to accommodate our church, likely more than that. So how could we ask our volunteers to be here all day on Sunday or possibly Saturday as well to accommodate that, uh, serving all of those days and serving all day. It just, in the end, the benefit doesn't make it worth the risk. And I know that some of you are gonna disagree with me on that. And again, like I respect that. And some churches are gonna choose differently. But for us, we want us to be safe we want to have a quality experience, and we think that right now the, the highest quality experience we can have is to deliver it to you online. Um, all of this this week, it got me thinking about the Israelites, how they experienced this great high moment of escaping uh, slavery in Egypt, and then they, they experienced a miracle of crossing the Red Sea, 
And then they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And I know it hasn't been 40 years, but doesn't it feel a lot like we're wandering in the wilderness right now? And you know, while they were doing that, they didn't have a map and they didn't have a calendar. So what guided them? What guided them during that time? We're going to talk about that a little bit. And in respect to that, like, what if, what if this is part of God's plan for us right now? What if God intends for the church, particularly in America, maybe even in this valley, he intends for us to walk in the wilderness and learn some things right now? I, I'm not saying that, that I'm not a prophet, but I do wonder what God is teaching us during this time. Do you? So, if we don't have a map and we don't have a calendar, what is guiding us in this time? Um, remember we said at the beginning that we have a compass. And our compass involved at least three things. First of all, Scripture. Scripture is our compass. We, we're complying with the rules because Romans 13 tells us to obey those that have the rule over us. Um, we talked about in, in, at the very beginning, of the new normal, when we've had our first online service, we, we talked about the great commandment, to love God and to love our neighbor as ourself. And we're continuing to do that. We cannot separate those two things. They go together. And all we can do is search our hearts, pray and seek God and say, how do we bring these two together in this time? And so that's, that's part of what is directing us. And I know it's not easy. I mean, I've talked before uh, to our church about how Micah 6.8 is kind of a guiding verse for me when I don't know what to do. And if you're not familiar with it, uh, Micah the prophet says that, you know, God has shown you. He's told you what to do. You know what to do. It's to, to, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. And you know, those three, three things can be in conflict with one another. And I often go to that and say, okay, how do I do the just thing, the right thing? How do I stand for truth? How do I be merciful in this? And how, how do I hold that humbly? And I, and I hope that that's what we're all doing during this time. On that note, not just scripture is guiding us, but wisdom. You know, I'm in connection with uh, many other churches in the Valley, have a, a smaller group that I coordinate with, and we talk about these issues, and we're all on the same page. The churches that we follow, many of the churches are choosing this way as well. And it's, it's not to say that a church that doesn't choose to do this is unwise. It's not saying that they're unloving. It's just saying that as we have weighed out our options for us, and our, our situation could be different than many other churches, but we've weighed it out and we've said, this is the best decision we can make. You know, I want to mention that um, fear is not driving us here. Although I will say right away, fear is not a bad thing. You know, I've, I've seen um, many Christians out there saying fear, faith over fear, and, and I get that. But, you know, sometimes fear can be a good thing. Fear keeps us from doing crazy things. So I'm not going to say that fear is entirely bad. But that is not what's driving us. Wisdom is driving us. And remember, remember that Proverbs tells us that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, Right? Um, and then the last thing that we said is our compass is our vision. Um, 
And remember, we want to deepen faith, bring hope, and live love. And none of this has stopped us from doing that. I've loved our stories of, uh, that are on Instagram where we're seeing people from Sunridge, and they're just the ones that are making on video. Many of you are doing this. You are, you're deepening your faith during this time, and you're bringing hope and living love in various ways by bearing his image in your community, in your family, and in the ways that you serve in your vocation. I got to tell you, we want to gather. We want to be together. Like you, probably, I've started reopening my life. I've st- we've started hanging out with some of our family. Uh, we've started hanging out with friends, and we're slowly going back into life. But we're following that compass. Not only do we have a compass at Sunridge, but we have a plan. And I just want to let you know that we have, we've identified at least three phases of reopening our campus. Number one are offices. So we are already, we've already started disinfecting our offices. We bought, brought back our facilities people. And in the next week or so, we will reopen our offices. And our staff is so excited to be able to be together, in, in a, but also uh, follow health orders while we are together to do it in the safest possible way. After that, we plan to open parts of our campus for small and medium-sized gatherings. We're, we're constantly watching the health orders and uh, you know, praying and, and kind of dicing things together and saying, okay, what's, what's the next thing? You know, like, is it going to be small groups on our campus or can we bring our students together in certain uh, size groups or whatever? We're, we think that that will be the second phase of some way of reopening our campus. And then last, the last phase will be just 100% opening of our campus uh, for worship services. And again, we don't have a specific date for that. We're, we're, we're walking in uncertainty. Probably you could expect that when we initially get back, there'll only be one service because we think that a lot of people will still choose to stay home. Some of you are probably saying, yeah, I probably will. Um, and uh, the online service is here to stay. In the meantime, and I know I've taken a lot of time uh, but I've crushed my message down, so bear with me. In the meantime, be the church, Sunridge. Be the church. Be the church to one another. Hold watch parties. Meet in your backyard. Meet your friends at the park. One of, one of the best pictures I've seen on social media is two Marines from our church who sat together in a parking lot and had coffee. I loved that picture. There is nothing uh, preventing us from doing those kinds of things. And that's really important right now because people are suffering in different ways. We're, uh, this is having not just a, a health toll on us, it's having a mental toll and an emotional toll and certainly a spiritual toll. And we have to look for ways and think creatively and innovatively in how to overcome that. So right now, wherever you are, I want you to put up your hand like this. I want you to show me that you have five fingers, unless you taught high school shop. You have five fingers, right? Okay, so... Um, Every week, I want you to hold your hand up and think of five people that you could reach out to in the safest way possible. Send them a text. Many of you are already doing this. Call them. Schedule a FaceTime. Sit in their backyard. Meet in a parking lot for coffee. But every week, we need to be the church to one another and think of that number five because we need each other. 
Secondly, be the church to your church. Support us. Follow our leadership. Continue to give and support us financially. Serve in the ways that you can right now. Uh, many of you are like doing Zoom groups and your, uh, our MOPS has been online with Zoom. It's like there's so many ways that you're still serving. Continue to do that and can, continue to be the church to your church. And then last, be the church to our community because we are a church for this valley. Be the light of Jesus wherever you are. Be the light to your family, to the organizations that you're a part of to your neighbors. Be the light of Jesus Christ because we are the church. In fact, give me a shout out on chat right now just to make sure I haven't put you to sleep or sent you off to another church. Put it in your chat. We are the church! Exclamation point, all capitals, however you show your emphasis. We are going to be the light of Jesus Christ in this valley, which brings us to our teaching. And I want to put a verse up it's kind of like the main text, and it's from John's Gospel in John 1.14. Speaking of Jesus, uh, the Apostle John said, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And you know, we've been in a series where we've been talking about who God is. The title of this series is just God is, and we're filling in that blank each week. And we see here in the beginning of John's Gospel that John puts together two things that Jesus is the light and he's the life. And you know that we talked last week when we talked about God as light, that Jesus is both the light of the world and the life of the world. We also talked about how it's significant when the Bible uses a noun to describe God. So just like with light, when John tells us that God is life, he sa he's saying that, he's not just saying that he brings life, or he gives life, or he allows life, or he controls life. He is life. And to illustrate just how powerful this statement is, look at John eleven twenty five 25, when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He's saying that I have power over the grave, because, which is simple for him, because he is life. There are 28 references in your Bible, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, pretty evenly divided up where uh, when God is referred to, he is called the living God. And when the Bible uses that phrase, a living God, it's going beyond his organic status. It's addressing his nature and his essence. He is the living God. And as the living God, he is life. And I know that some of you right now are going, you know, Britt, you've You've become completely a pastor. That's great theology. Uh, that's real nice, but what does it matter? And that's where if you're, if you're a note taker, I want you to bring out your notes because we're gonna talk about what are the implications of God is life. And I'm gonna go through these really quickly, so stick with me. First of all, God is life means that he is self-existent. He's self-existent. In John 5, 26, he, that is the father, has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. To be self-existent means that God doesn't owe his existence to any other being or cause. See, I owe my existence to my parents. I drive a Tundra and I, it owes its existence to the company called Toyota and many other suppliers of their parts. 
I have a wisteria arbor that I built and it owes its existence to my craftsmanship and lumber and the lumber processes. And so the earth and the universe also owe its existence to God who through his means made the world as he saw fit. But some of you are saying, well, wait a minute. Who made God? See, that's the thing with being self-existent. Self-existent means that he's eternal. Now to say that God is self-existent is not illogical. To say that anything is self-existent, it's not illogical, it's fantastic. But you know that ultimately there was always something. I've talked about this before. Um, there was always something, right? And as we just back through eternity, eventually we're going to land to like that is the original thing, right? And you can either believe that that was matter or you can believe that it was something beyond that that doesn't require its own, that it doesn't require creation. Now we know something about matter. We know that matter can't make itself right? So that's why I stand on this fact that if there was always something, it has to be something that didn't require creation. So when we say that God is self-existent, it means that he was forever and he's far beyond what we can think of. And he didn't require someone or something to make him. Either way, you have to back it up to there. So uh, if you're still with me, following along in the chat, put this in there. There was always something or someone. Next, God is life means that nothing can threaten his existence. You see, God since God required nothing to bring him to life, to create him, nothing can take life from him. God is not dependent upon another being or an environment for his survival. I love what Paul says as he speaks to people who are not God followers in Athens in Acts 17.25. And he says that God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. See, God isn't reliant upon something to keep him alive. In fact, Jesus even said that he gave his life. No one took his life. He said, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my accord. You see, there's no virus or no foe or no clock that eliminates God. There is no kryptonite for God. If you're following along in the chat, just either say that aloud or like, Type it out right now. No kryptonite for God. God is life means that he is the one true God. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 46, 9, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me. You see, what Isaiah is channeling through God's voice here is that in that time, there is a culture of like, there's all kinds of gods. And God is saying through his prophet that even though there's this idea that there are many gods, there is no other. He is God and there is none like him. So when we say that, you know, well, I believe this or I believe that, you know, is that, this is just a different perspective that we have. All of that flies in the face, of the nature of who God is when he says he is life. See, the other gods are man-made. Isaiah says that they're dead we would say that they're fake news. 
Next, God is life means that he's the purveyor of life, not death. Now track with me here. God is all things life. And death is not the result of sin. Death, death is the result of sin, not God. Thanks for catching me there. Some of you are already calling me out on chat. In Romans 5.12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Death comes through sin, Paul tells us. I've heard people say, well, you know, death is just a natural part of life. No, it's not. It was not part of the original plan. Sin brought death. In fact, since that time, God's purpose has been to redeem mankind not just eternally, but in our lives today. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, that death has been swallowed up in victory through the cross. God is the purveyor of life, not death. God as life also means that we are designed to rely on him for our lives. If God is life and that he's self-existent and he embodies what life is, then we, we, it just makes sense for us to rely on him for our lives. And at the core of idolatry is always finding our lives, finding a sense of purpose, finding our core values in something other than God. You see, if John's gospel is true in John 1, where he said, all things were made through him and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. That means that everything that is, was made by him. It's for him, and it exists only because of him. So aren't we called as human beings and certainly as believers to put our hope in the living God as Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.10? When I was studying for this message, I started thinking about how when Moses was uh, leading the children of Israel out of Egypt, and of course he didn't feel up to the task, and in his interactions with God, God says to him, I am. Now, he wasn't quoting Popeye there. When, when God says to Moses, I am who I am, he's saying, I am the self-existent God. I'm above any challenge that you could face. I am, I am bigger than anything that's in front of you. I am is synonymous with I am the self-existent God who is life. And so when Moses came to these challenges in his life, when he was struggling with whether he is actually called by God to do this thing, God says to him, I am who I am. God tells him when the Israelites, who, they're not going to listen to you right away. And I know that you feel insecure about that, Moses. But he says, this is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And, he, and God said to him, and I know you're going to be intimidated to stand before the Pharaoh. But when you do and you tell him to let my people go, I want you to say to him, I am the Lord. The I am says to let my people go. You see, God is life. And if he is life, our, our lives are rooted in him. Our lives find peace purpose. Our lives find direction and essence in the fact that God is life. Now, the reason why I've spent 
all this time to w- walking you through that is in this series, God is, we're, we are discovering and in some cases rediscovering for the first time um, who God is. And it's the most important thing about us. So if God is life, then as his image bearers, we bear the image of life. You're still with me. Put that in the chat right now. I bear the image of life. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And we've already talked about how God placing his image on us and us recognize that is, is linked with our purpose and our vocation in life. And Jesus says that he came to bring life, but not just, not just organic life, but to life to the fullness. That is our lives and the life of God in us are inextricably linked. Our only way to find true purpose, to find who God wants us to be in this world, in this time, is to link our hearts and our minds to this fact that we bear the image of life. And as God's image bearers, then we must be for life. Do you get that? If we bear the image of God's life, then we must be for life. So what that means is, as Christians, we have to be for life. That means we have to be pro-life, all life. Put in the chat right now or just say out loud, I am for life. See, regardless of what the current culture says, because God is life, we know that abortion, except to save the life of a mother, violates his image. Uh, In the note sheet, I've placed a list of organizations that we support, and it's going to come up in the chat right now, that are for life. One of those is birth choice, birth choice and organizations right here in our community. And one of our members, Shauna Klimt, is the nurse manager of that organization. And birth choice believes that God values each person's life and they aim to be there for those that need to make life choices and decisions. They offer pregnancy testing and ultrasound. They offer material assistance and educational programs. They offer a range of free and confidential services for women and men. They offer referrals. If you need uh, help obtaining health insurance or housing, adoptions, food assistance, And even for those that choose not to continue their pregnancy, they offer resources to them as well for spiritual and emotional healing. But you know, as Christians, we can't be single issue when it comes to life. We can't be single issue Christians. Put that in your chat right now. I cannot be a single issue Christian. If we truly believe that God is life and that we bear his image of life, then we have to reflect that life to women who have chosen to have abortions. And we have to bring life and hope and forgiveness and acceptance and healing to those that have done that. Not condemnation, but we bring life to them. 
we bring life to the men who are part of that formula, part of that situation. We bring life to the men who have pressured women and possibly helped them obtain that abortion. To be for life means that we have to wrestle with the issues that make abortion seem like the only out to some women. You know, the first century was for life. It was common in that day, uh, infanticide was. Uh, of course, you know, someone who was devout could not kill. But if you, if you had a baby that was somehow um, inadequate, or even female, that baby could be taken to the outside of the city and placed in the dump and allowed to expire from starvation. Simply because it was an unwanted child. And you know, the church started going to those places and rescuing those abandoned children, regardless of what their issues were. The early church cared for the poor They were for life. They followed Jesus' example, which is clear in the scripture, that he he helped poor people. The early church was involved in women's issues. They took care of widows, whose only possible hope for survival was to remarry, even if it was a horrible marriage. They were damaged goods, and so it wasn't likely that a woman would get remarried unless she had other factors in her favor. And so the church took care of widows. Read Acts chapter 6 on that. The church looked after orphans. There were just all the cultural issues that were anti-life. The church was leaning in and addressing those. They were for life. Are we? Is the Christian community truly for life? Are we bearing his image? The life of God in the time in which we live. Now, I'm not, I don't want to offend you. I just want to nudge you a little. So hang with me here. What's your social feed say? Are you for life? Think about the conversations you've had this week, this week alone, especially the ones that you were most passionate about. Was the gospel in it? Did you talk about life? I'm dismayed today as a Christian because it seems like evangelical, and political party are separate. I know I'm I'm stepping into a territory where I'm going to offend somebody. And you know what I've learned? I'm offending people all the time without even trying. So like, if I offend you right now, I I don't mean to do that. But I I do wanna be your pastor, if you're listening. Is evangelical or Christian in capitals for you or your political party? It seems to me that a couple of years ago, like to me, it's like I was thinking, we, we're living in a time of outrage. It's like people are so mad and so polarized. But you know what? I think that it's clicked another click. And I think we're living in a culture of cruelty. 
And I don't think God is pleased with that. You know, Proverbs tells us the power of life and death is in our tongue. Do our words, are our words life-giving? Or are they destructive? James wrote in James 3, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with it we curse men who've been made in God's likeness. Are we for life with our words, in our positions? You know, for life means pro-life, certainly. But pro-life also means human rights. And for life also means civil rights. There are life issues that are critical, I think. I think that this is a time right now for the Christian community to be for life in these issues. Being for life includes pro-life. We've talked about that. But being for life also includes issues of race. It dismays me to hear evangelical leaders say that there's no race problem in America today or that churches should not be addressing the race issue. You know, Jesus stepped across all kinds of racial boundaries. And really, and I know, like some of you are like, you're getting angry at me right now and some of you are going, amen. It's probably showing up in the chat. If we're going to be for life, we have to be for the issues that are in our time. And you know, we have a major race problem still in this country. If you've been watching the news, you know that a black man was running through a neighborhood in Georgia and he was shot. And it took multiple prosecutors and two months a public outcry for someone to finally do something. Now I know that not all the facts are in, but you can't be shot for running down the street. And I think we all know that if that man had been white, he wouldn't have got shot. We have to be for life. To be for life is to be for the poor and marginalized as well. And again, I'm dismayed when I see Christian leaders who berate the idea of social justice. To be for life, for the poor and the marginalized, which is, you cannot read the Gospels without looking at Jesus' life about how he addressed this in his day and time. I'm not saying I have all the issues or all the answers, but we have to have a compassionate heart toward it. I don't know if, if it's personal responsibility, if it's like, you know, more infusion of cash. I don't know. I don't have those answers, but we as Christians, we cannot ignore it and we can't harden our hearts to this issue. It means caring about the conditions that people are living in. It means giving them good schools and health care and opportunity and the right role models. And I often hear people say, well, it's their fault they're in that situation. Really? What is a kid's fault? What's a kid's fault who's living in an inner city in a school that's fallen apart and they can't get good teachers to go there? Are we for life? 
I realize that these are controversial issues, not just in, in America today, but they're controversial within the context of faith in the Christian community. And if you're really struggling with what I'm saying right now, and you're still with me, what is going to be our standard for justice in the world? What is going to be our standard for life? You know, if, if you're not a Christian, you know, what is your standard for justice and how things should be? It seems to me like I hear a lot of people who are not believers uh, demand that they be free and that they, they be free to live out their identity the way they want to live it, but they also want to control everybody else's identity in the way that they live. When we, when we put God at the center of our lives, when we return to who God has made us and we allow his image to bear on us, we have something that's substantial and meaningful and without change for what justice is going to look like. And by the way, you can't escape this, Christian. In the law, it talks about justice. God loves justice and he hates injustice because he is life. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And I want, as they're kind of moving stuff around, I want to give you something to think about as if I haven't already. But it seems to me that these issues that, we, that I've talked about here at the end, whether it's uh, abortion or race or uh, the poor and the marginalized, these end up being so divisive, you know, like some of those issues are liberal in a sense, and one of them is owned by conservatives. And it seems like that you can't find these three that Jesus certainly was for, that God is for because he's life. Um, we can't find them in any party political party altogether. We can't find them in any particular cable news network. We can't find them even at times within churches. And churches tend to divide over this. And what I'm saying is why do, why, why do we have to pick one over the other? Why can't we have all of them? Because God is life. And if he is life, we are for life. As we bear his image, we, we bring hope and we bring life to our communities and the world around us. In Deuteronomy, as it gets near the end, and this verse is on your note sheet, uh, there's kind of like a wrap-up statement by Moses when he says that he has set before us through this law which, by the way, as I've mentioned, includes justice issues. I've set before you blessing and curse, life and death. So choose life. You know, we often think about that in like our own personal implementation of God's law in our life, that we're choosing either to have God bless us or, or not to bring curse. But, you know, it's also part of the intent of the law. That as we live out that law, we bring life, not just upon ourselves, but we bring life to the world because we bear his image. How about we do that, Christian? How about we bring life to the world 
as we bear God's image of life. Let's pray.